millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. A Living History Production. I'm Peter Hart, and for the last 40 years, I've interviewed thousands of veterans about their experience of war. Join me on a journey through the pages of history. Welcome to Peter Hart's Military History. I'm Peter Hart, and this is my chum, Gary Bay, the sexiest man in North London, we've decided, isn't it? Uh, Hello, Gary. What are we doing today, mate? Well, we're going to be doing uh, Hague, building an army... 1902-1914. That sounds dead exciting. Well, it doesn't sound exciting, does it? But uh, but you know what? It, it it's important to understand uh, what 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 it. Why is it that so many people try and defend Hague against mass popular opinion? Uh, why do we stand against <laughs> polite society? Well, I often stand against polite society. <laughs> anyway, uh, it's the, the thing about Hague is it's not just when he was commander of First Corps in 1914, when he's commander of First Army in 1915, commander of the whole BF 1915-ish to 1918. It's not just that. It's not. You see, we... Can we, I just correct you? I think you'll find he was commander of the BEF until 1919. You are so clever. Written down. <laughs> it's written down just there, is it? If only I could read. It, it, the thing is, when you're trying to understand the, the First World War, I, I always think, if you want a litmus test, Gary, a litmus test as to whether you're some sort of historian or, 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 or whether you've got any sort of competence as a military historian, your attitude to Hague is, is just about... That's a, that, that gives a good indication of whether you're a decent military historian or not. But the other thing is that his pre-war history is like a prism. It refracts light whoa, onto the whole of the British army because he's so important between 1902 and 1914 to the development of the British army. He is, isn't he? And you've probably got a song about that as well. No. <sighs> no, he is, but he's not alone. You know, you've got Haldane as well, particularly. Um, so, but he is very important, and we've we've mentioned in previous podcasts his role in the Sudan and in the Boer War, and he's he's a developing man. Developing, yeah, <laughs> right. <laughs> Some say he came late, but he came. <laughs> Yes, I think we'll uh, we'll uh, we'll glide past some of that. Um, after yeah, he he'd done well in the Sudan. He'd done very well in the Boer War. He de- he he de- demonstrated 
his abilities, so to speak, and uh, he, he was given a series of, of, of appointments, a lot of them staff, but some of them command, over the next uh, 12 years. First, he becomes Inspector General of, of Cavalry, and, and that's an important role. Then he's promoted to Major General, something you never were, Gary, and he acts in that capacity as Director of Military Training at the War Office. That's from 1906 to 1907. Then he's Director of Staff Duties, 1907 to 1908. Then Chief of Staff in India, and that is is a really, really big job. And then finally, and this is important, isn't it? He, yeah. He's appointed to the Aldershot Command. And you've got a viewpoint on the Aldershot Command. He's, he's made, uh, that's 1912, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, it, it's often um, referred to as, as the primary regimental appointment in the, in the British Army. Ultimately, it will lead to the command of uh, First Corps and the First Army. Now, uh, let, let's go back to... Uh, uh, to, 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 a little bit about Hay, because as, as it, his, his military influences, if you like, his, his attitude to military doctrine, because as he goes into staff, he becomes more concerned with doctrine and, and organizational things. And he, he was very, what do you think most influenced him in his military thinking? Was it his visits to, uh, to, uh, to Germany? Was it the Sudan? Or, or what do you think made him, what was his formative influences, do you think? Well, he wasn't. It was never an original thinker, was he? So, so he would take others' ideas, but he would be receptive. So, once he found something sound, he'd adopt and develop it. So, for example, he was adherent of the the standard staff college interpretation that any battle would go through uh, distinct stages. So, for example, initial manoeuvring to gain a tactically advantageous position. The first encounters. Now, this is interesting. A wearing out phase of indeterminate length before one side or the other starts to lose cohesion in the field. Now, interestingly, he wrote to the then Brigadier General Lancelot or Lancelot Kiggle in April 1909. And he said, as regards meeting the storm, which we all foresee, it seems to me that it will last a long time and we will win by wearing the enemy out if only we are allowed three more years to prepare. And then, of course, the, the Staff College uh, also said the decisive stroke could be launched and followed by the exploitation of victory to the maximum effect. Now, think about that in relation to what subsequently he did as commander in the Great War. In 1918, in 1918. advanced to victory. So for, 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 for him, it seems to what you're saying, that the staff college is key to his military thought. I mean, he wasn't original. He didn't come up with this. He, developed, he, he basically worked on what he was given at staff college when he attended there. But he absolutely bought into it, Peter. He, he, you know, he, the, this wasn't a view that he followed. He absolutely adopted it. Now he, uh, we're not we're not doing this chronologically. We're doing it thematically. So when he, when he worked as director of staff duties at the War Office, he encapsulates all this in Field Service Regulations Part One, uh, which is a sort of manual issued in 1909 by the Army Council, and that sketches out general tactical principles to govern oh, well, the British Army's conduct in in, in any conflict. Um, and Hague uh, Hague's convinced that. These basic tactical principles are enough. He doesn't go for the, the French theoretical approach of sort of 
they're always, they're, they're, you know, or, or the German uh, theoretical approach. He, he doesn't believe much in doctrine, although uh, and it's a bit tendacious because this is doctrine, really, isn't it? But uh, you've got a quote that's sort of that, that's hard hitting from 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 young Dougie, although he's not so young anymore, is he? It's younger than us, though, actually, thinking about it. He is, yeah. So this is Douglas Haig. While the German general staff preaches the doctrine of envelopment and the French general staff advocates a large general reserve with a view to a concentrated blow at a decisive point, oh, sorry, a decisive point of the enemy's battle order, the critics urge that the British general staff hesitates to publish and to teach a clear line of action. The reasoning appears to be that unless some such definite doctrine is decided and inculcated in peace, action in war will be hesitating and mistakes will be made. The critics seem to lose sight of the real nature of war and the varying conditions under which the British army may have to take to the field. It is neither necessary nor desirable that we should go further than what is so clearly laid down in our regulations. If we go further... We run, we run the risk of tying ourselves to a doctrine that may not be always applicable and gain nothing in return. An army trained to march long distances, to manoeuvre quickly and to fight with the utmost determination will be a suitable instrument in the hands of a competent commander whether the situation is to be solved by envelopment or penetration. So he's eschewing envelopment <laughs> penetration as a, as a tactic and, and, and keeping an open mind as to each situation as it comes up. Now, the, the regulations he talks about are these the, the field service regulations. And, and one of the most important things is, is that in view of what happens with the all-arms battle, and I'm not saying he looks ahead to the all-arms battle, but this is key to understanding... Uh, in a sense, how it develops is he, he lays special emphasis on all the component parts of the enemy have to act together in, in concert on the battlefield. This is the idea of everything has to work together. And I'm going to read this quote. Now, this quote and the others from field service regulations are quite frankly dull. In fact, Gary, I remember you saying to me when we discussed this podcast and I said, you said, I'll be buggered if I'm reading that boring old tosh. But I think that this, it's these regulations and the thinking behind them that, 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 that instead of thinking about people dying on the battlefield and, and, and being sad and looking at graves, it's nice to actually think, it's not nice, it's, it's, it's proper to think about how this happened. And this is how it happened. So this is Field Service Regulations Part 1. I'll probably do it in some silly voice, just ignore me. The fighting troops of the army are composed of cavalry, artillery, engineers, infantry, mounted infantry, and of cyclists. <laughs> cyclists? I hope they had protective helmets. These are these arms are in certain proportions. I say, I tell you, it's a curse on the house of heart. The Hampstead Building Society, <laughs> which have been fixed as a result of experience. Each has its special characteristics and functions, and is dependent on the assistance of the others. The full power of an army can be exerted only when all its parts act in close combination. And this is not possible unless the members of each arm understand the characteristics of the other arms. 
Infantry depends on artillery to enable it to obtain superiority of fire and to close with the enemy. That's true, isn't it? Think of the Great War. Without mounted troops, the other arms are hampered by ignorance of the enemy's movements, cannot move in security and are unable to reap effectively their fruits of victory, while mounted troops are at a great disadvantage unless accompanied by horse artillery, which assists them to a combined shock action with fire. Artillery and engineers are only effective in conjunction with the other arms, and all their efforts must be directed towards assisting the latter to secure decisive success. Now, what I notice about this, Gary, is that people say, oh, horses, cavalry, no, but this is 1909. Yeah, the, the, the aeroplanes, they're there, but they're, they're not being developed yet, are they? What, they're, cavalry the only reconnaissance move. There's something else about cavalry. They're the only fast-moving thing, the only thing that moves quickly in the whole British Army. They are essential at the time. I could see you wish to come back at me. Well, I was going to say, it's that sounds like the, the lessons, and I think you come on to this, that sounds like the lessons that they took away from the Boer War, where they were against a, a fast-moving enemy. Um, so so it's it's entirely understandable that they would take those lessons and implement them into the army. Now, there is one problem about the British Army, and funnily enough, it was in the news, it was in the news yesterday, again, with, with arguments about the cult of the regiment. Now, uh, you, were, uh, you were in a corps, I think, not a regiment, yeah. uh, uh, but, but the army was in thrall to a sort of cult, and it's like individual fiefdoms, the lieutenant colonel, and you, you've heard of colonel, it even happens in a big organisation like TFL. Someone runs a department... And they move, the next person changes everything. Why? They just change everything, because they're new. And lieutenant colonels are buggers for that. And the problem is that the individual battalions, there was little consideration how they liaised together to fight as a brigade, a division or a corps. Certainly not as a corps, and not much as a division. They also, there was no real grasp. You see, a theoretical, Haig can say it in part one of the the uh, regulations, but they don't really grasp how to work together, do they? Um, they, they can't properly coordinate the infantry, artillery and the, the cavalry because, well, for one thing, there's a lack of training. And, and do you know what? Britain's not that big a place and there just wasn't bloody room for realistic large formation exercises. I mean, what do you think? Wasn't about that it? the same for the Continental Armies? But, not for the French, partially so. For the Germans, no, there's dirty great big holes in Germany. Well, and not just the ones we've blown in it over the previous two uh, world wars. There's, there's places where they've got the room to manoeuvre, to practice, and that's useful. But there's something else missing in the British Army. Uh, can, well, can you put they, your finger there was, on it? There was definitely a shortage of trained staff officers, uh, which would allow the constituent elements of large formations to, to function smoothly. Without that, without staff work, and you've said it again and again and again, without good staff work, uh, which was <laughs> widely perceived as a dull necessity uh, and, and to be avoided, if at all possible. So what do officers want to do, Gary? What they do want they... to do regimental duties. They saw that as the highlight of an officer's career, particularly... In time of war. So better to be a, a, a major in charge of a company or a, or a lieutenant colonel in charge of a, a battalion than to be a, 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 a colonel, in, for instance, in, in, in a staff job. Yeah, but which they saw as a sort of office job in the rear. It wasn't at the cutting edge of the army, which is where in the time of war they were desperate to be. And we had that. There was a race to get to the Boer War, if you recall. 
Um, and uh, we mentioned that in a previous podcast. They and, were anxious to get into the regiment. And, and we did a podcast on 1914 uh, about Mons, and, and one of the things we mentioned was that all the regiment, all the staff officers, all the pa- pa- PSC, past staff college, tried to get it back to their regiments. Uh, disastrous. So, so this is an un- this is something that uh, these are things that Haig was unable to sort out. Haig, all the other people, Smith, Dory, and the others were unable to sort out. Now, um, there is another comment, and you raised it earlier, and you're quite right to raise it. There's another problem, and that is the confusion caused by the nature of the Boer War and and how it, well, how does it it be- it tweaks, it bends. It influences the idea of field tactics. So, 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 so you, you take me through it. So what is the problem? Why is the Boer War not a good example for someone preparing to fight the Germans? Well, it, the Boer War was far from typical, was it? And, and if you recall the, the Second Boer War, that it's almost in two phases. The commander goes back to the UK and hands over to com- command to Kitchener because he thinks the war's over. And then you have a couple of years of guerrilla warfare where, uh, you know, farmers... Uh, and that's what they were, would take the opportunity to hit and move and hit and run. Well, that's not what the Germans are going to do. The Germans, there's a a well-thought-out plan for the invasion of of France through Belgium, and practically everybody knows that's what's going to happen. Sort of. <laughs> so, so these, the, the, so the the, the Boer War is is all about mobility, about about being able to to to, to cover vast dif- distances. So, so being able to move things quickly is crucial, but it's short termism, isn't it? It's it's it, 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 this is a classic case of fighting the last war when you should be preparing for the next war. Um, now. Um, one thing is, uh, uh, do you think that British officers, we often hear that the British officers have no respect for firepower. Well, what do you think about that? What do you think Haig thought about firepower? Well, he'd learned by a bit of, bit of experience, hadn't he? The, the, uh, the open ground uh, of bore entrenchments were killing fields. And again, in the previous uh, podcast, we talked about the, the rifle that the Boers had, it was a decent uh, Mauser rifle, they were good shots, and if you were exposed, you got killed. I'll tell you another example, uh, and you know I'm very keen on the Sudan at the moment, uh, the Sudan as well, he'd seen the effect of modern weapons on charging troops, high morale charging troops, but shot to bits before they got anywhere near. He also understood the effectiveness of the machine gun. You know, again, we're harping, harping back to previous podcasts. But he visited uh, the Enfield factory. Uh, he'd seen the machine gun in operation. It wasn't understood about uh, firing from the side at that time, but he understood the rate of fire. Now, um, so, so let's look at what weapons the infantry have. Uh, and how I mean, they're, they're to win the firefight. So it's all about the firefight, isn't it? Uh, yep. the, got, so so what, what weapons do they have? Well, one of them you've actually fired. Cause you, we, tell, tell me about the, the, the British rifle. What is it? Well, it's uh, a three hundred three short magazine Lee Enfield Mark III, which is a bolt-action rifle. Um, it was introduced in 1907, and I fired it relatively re- recently. It was about five years ago, I think, that I fired it. Um, it could hold two clips of five rounds. Uh, it had a very efficient bolt action to load and extract rounds. So if you think about that, that's exactly pull it back and it will expel, push it forward and it will put the round into the breech. Um, and it had a range that reached out to around 2,800 yards, although the field service regulations defined up to 600 yards as close. And uh, 
you and I have a view on that. We might come back come to back. it. <laughs> and uh, 600 to 1,000 yards to be effective. Now, I find this 600 yards business quite so, because you and I have a perspective. We're both sat here. I'm not, we're... Uh, we're allowed to visit each other again. <laughs> Lovely to see you. But uh, we're both blind as bats, aren't we? At 600 yards, what can you see at 600 yards? Close well, range. Can you hit anything at 600 yards? No. So, so as you know, I play golf. And if you're playing a 500-yard long hole, uh, you can't see the flag. I, I certainly couldn't. Could I hit it with a, with a, 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 a rifle? No. I mean, if you think a flag's probably the size of a head, I can't even see it. it. It's a long, long way, 600 yards. And, 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 the, the, and the idea of seeing someone at uh, a 1,000 yards is, is quite strange to me. Uh, the other thing is, uh, in, uh, in Europe, in, in, we're preparing for a war with Germany. Uh, do you often, uh, when you look out of my house window, can you see 600 yards? No. And, and you know, you, you can very well say to the Germans, excuse me, could you go and stand out in the middle of that field, please? Um, it, it's an industrial area. You're going to have housing, factories. Once the artillery starts to come into play, you're going to have rubble and debris and holes. And, and no, I would think a clear line of fire of sort of 100 yards would be the exception rather than the rule. So what we're talking about is that this rifle, in a sense, is tooled for the South African wide-open belt, uh, and not so much for Western Europe. Uh, but but it's, it, still, it's still a great rifle. Uh, and, and it's not a disadvantage. It's just that the idea of what is a close range is quite interesting. There is a bit of a cult of marksmanship which goes along with this, isn't there? Um, um, and we often hear about this, the rapid fire men, they fired, do you know they fired up to 250 rounds a year and some fired more refining skills. Uh, they, 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 they could fire on measured target firing on a range, um, uh, uh, the long range firing, snap shooting at near a moving target. And what else was it, Gary? This is the one that we never, ever, 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 ever stop hearing about. I don't know. You do know. <laughs> I, I tell you, you're referring to the famous 15 to 20 rounds per minute. It's, it was known as the mad minute. Now, is this a useful military thing, do you think? On occasion, yes. If someone's charging towards the you. The enemy are close, yes. But, of course, if you're firing that many rounds, then you're going to have a, a problem with the... Uh, uh, the rifle overheating. It's going to get yeah. very hot very quickly. It's not white hot, because that's what they always say. The rifle was white hot. Well, that's bollocks. Um, well, you'd also run out of ammunition, wouldn't you? Well, why would that be? Well, at the time, the individual soldier would carry uh, 120 rounds in the webbing pockets, uh, and you'd have probably an additional 100 rounds in cloth bandoliers. And, and in, in the initial contacts, that's all you'd have. I mean, it'd be quite difficult to re resupply. There, there are problems. Um, in some ways, better a mass of firing, especially at long ranges, if you get long ranges. Anyway, that, it's, uh, we're just raising this. Now, what else? What other weapons do, 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 do they have? Um, um, uh, well, of course, the, the machine gun. Uh, oh, no, hang on. I, I'm, going, I'm going all wrong. You're ahead here. of yourself. I mean, uh, at the moment, we're talking about the tactics of getting across an open space. Now, this is absolutely taken from the Boer War. Um, and... You know they're trying to they're trying to solve this. So they they make initial approaches in in widely extended order up to ten yards apart. Uh, they employ a series of of successive rushes at the double, covered by heavy covering fire. This was the fire that allowed the movement. Now, interestingly, I was taught that in the nineteen seventies. You know that was still being used nineteen seventy eight. 
uh, I think I only did it once, I seem to recall. But it was absolutely the, the movement forward, kneeling, firing, and the people behind you coming through you. And that was the fire that allowed you to move. Making them keep their heads, well, killing them or making them keep their heads down. Absolutely. I think that's interesting because often people refer to the fire and movement as an old-fashioned tactic. But what else is a fire and movement? Of course, it's fire and movement is the way forward. Uh, it, it, uh, I've always found that interesting, and it is, I believe, still taught. Uh, I'm sure someone will tell us if it isn't. Uh, anyway, um, uh, do, do they have an equal? So that's the attacking part: fire and movement. Is there is there a Defensive actions. Do you think they spend much time practicing defence at this time in the British Army before the First World War? No, there was nowhere near the same concentration on the tactical requirements. Do they build trenches and practice? No, they don't practice, practice building trenches. In them? I mean, arguably, that's laziness because it's hard work digging a trench. Now, yours, that is that is a quote, direct quote almost, from Dan Snow's relative, isn't it? Uh, yes. Do you remember him saying that? Yes. <laughs> yes. And you criticised him after I did. <laughs> You've been led into a trap here, haven't you? <laughs> but, you know, it is. And, and again, I remember digging a much shallower uh, trench in, in the 70s. And it's bloody hard work. And... Uh, You've got to have a suitable training environment to do it. So as you well. can't just do this anywhere in peacetime. Uh, uh, and, and yeah, uh, that's, that's another interesting point. Um, now, you could argue that they concentrated on the offence at the expense of the defence, because if you're not practising it, what happens when you have to do it? Now, machine guns. The Maxim, was it, it was replaced by the Vickers just as the war came on. The Vickers is just a different... Uh, well, it's lock, a variant, really. I think the lock's just the other way up. Uh, that, I think, is the main difference. Yeah, but, I think but, I'd like to say, actually, at this point, that the, the, uh, the Maxim machine gun was invented in 1884 by Sir Hiram Stevens Maxim. Now, he's got a knighthood. That makes him British. You sure? Well, he was an American British, but <laughs> but to use the Sir, he has to be British. Now, that was the world's first recoil-operated machine gun, and it's invented by a Brit, American Brit. We sh- we should be so proud that we've killed so many people. <laughs> yes, that's one way of looking. You at hadn't it. thought I was. I hadn't thought that. about that. No, but it, but it. I mean, as an invention, and you know, the suggestion is that the British didn't understand the machine gun or use it to to uh, its maximum purpose at the time. But uh, we did. Allow me to step in with the General Staff War Office Field Re- Service Regulations Part 1. That's easy for you to say. It's easy for me to And this is, again, this is it. The machine gun possesses the power of delivering a, a volume of concentrated rifle fire which can be rapidly directed against any desired object. Blimey, even the woman next door. Uh, rapid fire cannot be long sustained owing to the expenditure of ammunition involved. That's interesting because that... That's uh, they're thinking about highly mobile things there. They're not thinking about a trench or a defensive environment where you can store up ammunition. And it is therefore necessary that movement, movements and fire action of these weapons should be regulated so as to enable them to gain their effect by means of short bursts of rapid and accurate fire whenever a favourable opportunity arises. Surprise is an important factor in the employment of machine guns, which should be concealed and, whenever possible, provided with cover from fire. Uh, I'm thinking of the first VCs of the war here. Where where had they concealed that machine gun? Where are D's, Lieutenant D's, and uh, was it Godley? Well, they're they're in the front line, aren't they? They're they're, Uh, they're on the bridge. They're on the bridge. Yeah, and it it was D's and Godley. 
they hadn't exactly taken all these regulations into account. And this is part of the, you can, you can write a regulation, you can write a, a principle, but if it's not employed, it, it's no good to you. Well, it's the tactical deployment, isn't it? it now, it's understanding how to deploy them. Now, uh, uh, of course, uh, I presume the British didn't have enough of these machine guns. I presume uh, we were massively outnumbered by the French or the Germans. In no, we had, we had pretty much the same amount as both the French and German armies. Uh, I think it's fair to say... Two that, per battalion. Yeah, I think it's fair to say that it wasn't understood that uh, you, you would attack from the flank. They didn't always grasp that, hence your point about shooting across the bridge, de-sitting at the end of the bridge. It's far more effective firing enfilade fire across uh, because then it's just a killing field for anybody who enters it. Especially if you have more than one banded together, as the Germans did, whereas we just had our two uh, and, and, and they didn't band the brigades worth together. Um, now, so uh, why didn't they have more machine guns if they're so fab then? Well, I mean, surely, surely uh, the British government would step forward and provide the army with anything it wanted. I mean, we want eight and we, want, we won't wait with the fleet. What, what about the army? Did they get everything they wanted? No, I mean, there, there is a cost implication, but, which I think is the point you're making. But also there was this view that uh, the army would deliver such a concentration of rifle fire, firepower on the defending troops, that they'd break through. So they, it wasn't perceived as necessary um, because it, you know, arguably is a more defensive uh, weapon than, than the rifle. And they did have this doctrine of fire and then taking the objective. Now, let's. Uh, the, the, I, I think what we've been saying, it's, it's fairly obvious that the senior Brit officers of the British Army are at least partially going along with the French cult of the offensive, aren't they? Their battlefield tactics... Uh, well, Wilson certainly did, didn't he? Wilson. Uh, but but they, they believed... What, what they believed was that and they're not fools in one way. They, they, thinking people are fools just because they were wrong is, is silly. They thought that the modern weapons could deliver such a devastating concentration of fire that nothing could stand up to them. The defending troops would be destroyed or broken and would be overwhelmed by determined troops full of the spirit of their land. Yeah, but why wouldn't, why wouldn't you think that until you actually engage in a continental war why wouldn't you think that there's there's no there's no litmus test as you put it earlier and also one of the things to remember standing on the defense can be a useful tactic but in the end you have to go on the offensive usually if you want to attain your objectives and this is the quote from general staff the field service regulations part one decisive success in a battle can be gained only by a vigorous offensive that's not entirely true but decisive success probably is every commander who offers battle therefore must be determined to assume the offensive sooner or later if the situation be unfavorable for such a course it is wiser when possible to maneuver for a more suitable opportunity but when superiority in skill morale or numbers has given the commander the initiative he should turn it to account by forcing the battle before the enemy is ready now in reality that's just a bleeding obvious isn't it i mean do you not think so well it's written it's written in a, a room somewhere isn't it yeah but it is true it's bound to be bloody true if you've got 
If you've got the, the initiative, you, then you should use it. Superior numbers on the battlefield are an undoubted advantage, but skill, better organisation and training, and above all, a firmer determination in all ranks to conquer at any cost are the chief factors of success. Half-hearted measures never attain success in war, and a lack of determination is the most fruitful source of defeat. This is explaining a lot about Arsenal's recent problems. <laughs> Do you think they knew? Uh, a defensive attitude at the outset of a battle should not be assumed except when it is advisable to gain time or to utilise advantages of ground for some special reason, e.g. to compensate for inferiority of numbers. I find that a statement of the bleeding obvious, but but uh, but, 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 well, but it, I and, mean, and not attuned to what would happen. No, I mean, there is some truth in it, isn't there? But well, you can't manoeuvre in a trench battlefield. You can't manoeuvre to get a better situation if, if you're in... Well, they've not taken t- any account of the devastating power of bolt-action rifles, machine guns and artillery fire deployed from covered positions. And they're facing an equally well-trained and motivated force. For example, the Germans. So you know you're going to be fighting an equally, if not better, trained army. And there's no flank to turn, is there? Trenches from uh, the North Sea to Switzerland, there is no flank. There's no suitable opportunity. Uh, No. Uh, um, it's going to result an attack over open ground what do you think will happen to it? Slaughter uh, that's what's going to happen uh, and uh, well I don't know do, do they come to terms with this? Well slowly I mean arguably the first two years of the war are a period where they, the British certainly are slowly coming to terms with it and it's not because they don't understand the modern warfare it's just exactly as you've described it you know, the, the arguable race to the sea. That wasn't a race to the sea. Nobody wanted to get to the sea. They just wanted to get round a flank. And that was fast disappearing. Once it disappeared, painful. Are your flanks disappearing? My flanks are getting bigger, unfortunately. Oh, no. Anyway, so enough banter. That's a sort of juvenile remark that loses us listeners. Have you, are you aware of that? Anyway, bugger off, listeners who don't like juvenile remarks. That's what I say. Um, so, um, uh, where are we? Well, I think we'd better turn to the Royal Artillery. Were they well set up for a, a modern uh, sort of Western Front-style war? What do you think, Gary? No, again, learning the wrong lessons from the Boer War. Colenso, for example, the guns had been exposed in, in the, and taken by, by rifle fire. They, so they, they'd taken the lesson that you wanted smallish, mobile guns. So the British guns were more akin to the the 75mm for example. They didn't understand that they would need big heavy guns uh, and it's the wrong lesson for a continental war. And 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 they, they and they and as at Calenza, they kept putting them too close to the front line. Yeah, and so, so wrong guns placed in the wrong There place. is a need for field guns, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying that there isn't, but it's not the primary weapon in a continental war. So, um, the, and, and did they learn from the, the other big war that we, we, we're not going to talk about it much, but what the other, there's another war going on that, that people forget about, including me often. Well, they killed somebody from Hull. I think they sunk a trawler from Hull. Uh, the Russo, Russo-Japanese War 1904. Is I that, can't say that. that. Hull? Russo-Japanese. No, a whole, a whole trawler Don't was sunk. I think it was the, uh, the Russians <laughs> mistook it for a Japanese. They, they were sailing all the way around. Probably got sunk at the Battle of something. Um, uh, now that that had had shown the importance of counter battery fire, did we take note of that lesson? Yeah. People pointed it out here. So, funnily enough, you know who was the official observer? Have a guess. 
I have no idea. Was it Admiral Jellicoe or somebody? Of- Ian Hamilton. You've heard of him? Oh, I've never heard of him. <laughs> I'll take you to Gallipoli sometime. Yeah, that'd be nice. Right up Gallipoli. Right, now, um, so the, the, after the Boer War, I think uh, the, the Royal Artillery, it's, it's still locked into the wrong tactical perspective, isn't it? It, it? It's looking to direct fire from the guns. Now, what do we mean by direct fire? You can see what you're aiming at. Not over a hill or, or, or four miles away. You can see who you're shooting at. And that's important. It's close support of an infantry attack. That is important. Or to repel an enemy attack. Absolutely. Now, uh, what's the prerequisite for guns they want? We've, we've said this, but let's just hammer it out. Well, mobility. That's the lesson they took. That was the prerequisite. They otherwise, had to be able to keep up. They couldn't keep up otherwise. You're quite right. Now, what? so heavier guns would be slower? Yeah, of course they bloody would, because they're heavier. You need more. They're, they're more difficult to build. So there's a bias towards light field guns with gun carriages. Um, now, um, so what gun do they settle on? In 1904, they settle on a gun. And it, do you know what? It's a fantastic gun, isn't it? People often say, why oh, don't we have the 7.5 or the 5.9? But I think the 18-pounder is a fabulous weapon. Uh, to describe to me, Gary, what the 18-pounder is like. Well, that was a positive lesson taken from the Boer War. They, you know, they decided that uh, they needed a more effective gun, and the 18-pounder or 84mm was the was decided upon to be the main artillery piece. It was fantastic. It was a quick firing gun, pretty up to speed technology-wise, and uh, upon firing, the gun recoiled within a buffer case, which then slowed down and stopped before returning to the original firing position by what's called a recuperator spring. So you didn't have to re- re- relay it every time you fired it? it, it no, the gun carriage didn't move. Static. That, 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 that. So, so what rate of fire could they get with that? Uh, I think it was up to 20 rounds a minute. I think that's that's going some. Uh, but uh, I'm not. I think up to is the word up there. Up to is the word there, yeah. Uh, so at what range we got? we're talking? Well, it's about 6,500 yards. That's comparable to the French 75mm and the German 77mm. It's a good gun. What about, did they have any howitzers at all? Now, howitzers, we've talked about before, and everyone listening to this will know what they are probably. It, it's, a, it's a high trajectory gun. The, the shell goes up and over anything in between and drops down and plays with you. Uh, so, so what? What? what uh, Do they get a new one of them as well? Well, they had uh, what's uh, an excellent gun, the four point five inch howitzer, which is one hundred and fourteen millimeter, I think, in modern parlance. And it was first brought into service in nineteen hundred nine. A range of seven thousand three hundred yards, capable of firing up and over obstacles that would, frankly, they'd stop a, a, a flat trajectory of a gun. Uh, and uh, it had a firing rate of. Four rounds per minute. That's less than 20. That is less than 20. My maths said, finally, it's sort of equal to a challenge. Yeah. I'd say it's 16 rounds less. Do you know what? I'd say somewhere between 16 and 17, because I'm also not convinced you would get four rounds off. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I'm not convinced you get 20. So uh, these are these are guesstimates, uh, I think. Uh, now, um, so... Uh, the, 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 we had enough of these guns. We've got about the same number of guns per division as the French and Germans. Uh, but there's something we don't have. Now, the first thing is, um, you want to say that about real heavy guns, don't you? Um, because the one thing we don't have is mobile, mobile heavy howitzers. Now, the, the Germans had a lot more of these, but they also had super heavy 
uh, 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 howitzers and, and, and guns, didn't they? And you want to just mention this because it's a sign of the Germans thinking ahead a bit more than us, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, the Germans thought about this a lot in the pre-war years. They took a much greater interest in the capabilities of such weapons. Now, that's probably because they were thinking about the Belgian forts, frankly. Uh, and they, they saw them as vital to break down permanent or temporary field works in order to, to restore the mobility to the battlefield. Now, I'm going to, to talk about the big berthers, you know, everybody thinks that the big berthers. Now, they're not a was, battlefield weapon. They're not, but everybody thinks there was a gun called Big Bertha. It wasn't. It was a, it was a, a class of gun. It was designed in 1911, produced in 1912, and there were two available when the war started in 1914. Now, they were actually 42mm Cursor Marine Cannon. Uh, variant, I think, 1AL12, and they were made by Krupp. They were huge. 42 centimetre. Uh, 42 centimetre. What did I say? Millimetre. Well, never mind. No, I think it's 42 millimetre. No. Oh, it must be centimetre. That would be smaller than the 75 millimetre. <laughs> if you see what I mean. Yeah. That's true. <laughs> you with maths, me with millimetres. <laughs> What did I say in Gallipoli? Hill 921 was 921 yards. Yes, that was a little bit. <laughs> it would have been a mountain. It would. Anyway, um, but they, they do, the Germans take a different view. So they've got not only the super heavyweight ones, which are for, for a function, but also useful for smashing things like the Verdun forts and things like that later on. But they also have uh, lots of long-range howitzers that are in between there. Now, why are long-range howitzers, long-range guns so important? You mentioned it be- before, counter-battery. And this is something that's super important and wasn't realised really by the British until nine, late 1916. Uh, we never really get our, our, our eyes onto this. Uh, and our guns... If they've got a range of 6,500 yards, well, there's no man's land. We can hit the German front lines. It's difficult for us to hit their guns. So we're in trouble before we start. Um, now, are they, are they, uh, the gunners well-trained? Gunners are usually well-trained, aren't they? Yeah, I mean, the, the training that they received was excellent. Uh, it, it's not a question of training. It, the, the simple skill levels were good. So they could load and fire the guns, uh, drop into action, that kind of thing. They're good at that. Yeah, whether there was a, a real understanding of the more arcane elements of gunnery, that, that probably wasn't understood and, and would come much further on in the so war. So the officers and specialists are lacking in, in some of the gunnery skills. Let, let's just summarise these quickly. Uh, they don't have a grip of the techniques required for accurate indirect fire, where you can't see the target. Uh, they're not properly understood. Uh, so uh, so uh, uh, were the maps accurate and surveying techniques? Were they no, up they, to any they, of that? No, they were too in- inaccurate. They, they, could, they didn't allow for shooting off the map, certainly not at that stage, by estimating where exact location ranges and angles were. Do you think they knew about calibrating guns because uh, you to allow for different barrel sort of wearing no. rates of wear? Did they, have they got a grip of that? No, I don't think that was... A consideration at all. Do they understand the importance of meteorology? Now, I, I didn't for a long while, but changing barometric pressures, heat, these things affect it. Did they understand that? No, I mean, it, this is sounding more and more like science, isn't it? Like, uh, you know, having a, a the modern artillery certainly have a full understanding of the science of, of artillery, but at that time uh, it, it wasn't properly understood. I think the Royal Garrison, uh, let's go into this because the Royal Garrison artillery, I think they do understand it, uh, but uh, what, what about the uh, Royal Horse artillery and the Royal Field artillery? They're, they're, uh, they're not really up to it at all. Um, 
No, I think that the concepts of registering an invisible target from an, a concealed gun position lay in a frankly glum future when mathematics and science, as I've mentioned already, had overwhelmed the gentlemanly pursuit of warfare. So it's not beyond the science they had. It's just that a lot of officers weren't bothered with it. Because, no. So I remember interviewing an officer who, who said an old major told him, if it's cold, cock her up a bit. But that's not accurate enough. You need to work things out scientifically. Now, the Royal Artillery, what, 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 what about the shells they're equipped with? Uh, I presume they had a full range of shells. No, I mean, they're pretty much relying on shrapnel. Again, wrong lesson taken. And they, there was a distinct shortage of high-explosive shells. So that would be great in the veld. Absolutely great Trips in the veld. it open. But what do you need for trenches? High-explosive. High-explosive. Buildings? High-explosives. Uh, covered gun positions? High-explosives. Yeah. So, uh, actually, the, the other thing about the Royal Artillery is they had no idea of uh, continuous fire, sustained fire, did they? Now, uh, did you think they'll get, they have to fire a lot in the First World War? Well, certainly towards the, the later stages, uh, they could easily have to fire 500 rounds in a single day. And it's a well-known fact that there was a shell shortage in 1915. Well, there was shell shortage in late 1914 and always onwards because they just don't have any they, they don't have the shells because they weren't expecting it i think the royal artillery is badly off the pace uh it's i'm not criticizing them in one sense it's just that they're not prepared for the war that was coming uh at all no and if they were fighting on the uh the plains of south africa it would probably have been perfectly suitable for that terrain now, what about cavalry? We, uh, there's oh, a we bitterly, the it, there's lots of trouble about cavalry in the pre-war, and there's lots of people arguing. There's Roberts, who supports mounted troops, as uh, Field Marshal Roberts, who I think is a bit of an arse in many, many ways. But it, there's lots of... Uh, it, you see, the people all will point to Haig and Lord French, uh, Earl French, what is his name? Uh, Field Marshal French, as he became, uh, John French, anyway. They point to him and they say they're cavalry generals and criticise them there. Um, what were the roles? Like, Gary, just quickly go through what the cavalry were for. Well, let's, let's think about the primary role, reconnaissance. You know, you mentioned yourself, the aircraft were in their infancy. Uh, tanks were, were a long way away at this point. They had the role of feeling their way f forward, carefully probing to determine the, the, the movements and strength of the enemy. Otherwise, the infantry are blindly walking into that. Now, before aircraft, that is the only means of doing it. So what else? Well, they're acting as a, as a screen, aren't they? They, they? They're trying to prevent the enemy getting the self-same intelligence that they're trying to get. Um and, and again, you know, the aeroplane take over that role in the future. I but think that's not interesting. There yet. I think it's interesting because we do that. Funnily enough, the cavalry do a brilliant job of this compared to the Germans in 1914 campaign. Now, uh, what else? What else? What well, else? there's the there's the bold raid into uh, deep into the enemy's territory. That's not going to happen. That's irrelevant, isn't it? But they didn't know that, did they? But that's a big part of their thinking, isn't it? Yeah, well, that, that would have been designed to have a, a, a negative effect on the lines of communications and, and whatever's in the rear echelon. So support Headquarters. Functions, headquarters, any uh, uh, field support, artillery support, anything behind that front line. And they've done a lot of this in the Boer War, haven't they? Yeah, absolutely. And what, what else? Uh, well, it's the, it's the old... Real function of the cavalry. What is it, Gary? They're the shock troops, aren't ah. they? Why are they so shocking? Well, it, it, they were described as the armed blanche, weren't they? They were capable of charging enemy formations and shattering 
the cohesion. It's the uh, it was this last thing that triggered the most controversy about you know we we did podcasts about Waterloo and the heavy ca- cavalry charge. Can you imagine standing and taking that sort of charge? But the trouble is against quick firing artillery, machine guns, and bombs. Oh, you wouldn't worry rifles. about it at all, then, would you? You just shoot them to bits, especially if there's what else? What else has come into battlefields recently? Hey, well, barbed wire. Gary. You've got barbed wire. You've got machine guns, rifles, but the barbed wire, the horse wouldn't willingly run into the barbed wire. Now, so what's Haig's position on this? Because he's got uh, he, he's got a nuanced position, hasn't he? And a nuance is a good word because it's to do with uh, some of these historians who criticise Haig having a bit more of it. Um, so what does he, what, what, what does the intelligent cavalryman, what are they after? Well, he didn't want to lose the option of a charge, but he, but he understood that... Uh, they would be there to ensure that any charge would be covered by intense fire from the equivalent weapons in an attempt to prepare the way for success. So they wouldn't be doing it on their own. That's the first thing. He didn't see them, you know, careering off into the sunset towards the enemy. Uh, but he didn't want to lose the chance to break the morale of an enemy by inflicting the, the, the terrific kinetic impact. What does kinetic mean? Well, it's, um, it's the same as... Uh, a big horsey hitting man. Oh. <laughs> Start punching the nose, is it? Which yeah. I'm going to get if I You're try You're going to get that if you try that again. Uh, I might have just said it means Ian Hamilton. <laughs> um, so, uh, so yeah. So, so now, um, they, they think they'll lose the offensive spirit, uh, that the cavalry will go to ground when they see the enemy and instead of uh, instead of doing something. I, I, I think, uh, what is the end result, Gary? Well, let, let's just ponder for a moment. It, it resonated with me when we were looking at the Boer War that Haig had a particularly dismissive view of mounted infantry during the Boer War. So he saw the cavalry as the all-round soldier. Uh, so he didn't just see them as being you know, part of a charge. He could see them dismounting and fighting as infantry. And why didn't he like the mounted infantry? I think it's basically just because he thought they were crap and He didn't think they were, were good enough. He didn't think they were well trained in any aspect. They didn't look after the horses properly. Uh, so the horses were, were uh, not as fit as they might be. They couldn't ride well. They couldn't well. ride well and they couldn't shoot well. Couldn't shoot. So when they got off the horses, they were rubbish. And could they cavalry charge? No. So really, he just felt they were rubbish at everything. Yeah, so you end up with a compromise, which was pretty sensible, I suppose, which was the regular, the regular cavalry would be trained for all eventualities and therefore they'd be capable of performing a full range of roles. And that's how it worked out in 1914 as well. They are some of the most valuable troops on the Western Front, filling gaps. Uh, they had more machine guns relatively. Didn't they just wait behind on their horses? <laughs> don't be a, don't be a, don't be, don't start, Gary. They were crucial to the defence in 1914. Now, um, what about air? There's a lot of mental agility. They're talking about cavalry, but simultaneously they're also uh, thinking about the air, aren't they? And uh, the first aeroplanes, when have they gone into the air? Well, they'd only fluttered into the yeah, air in Gary, 1904. Gary, fluttered. You, 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 do you mean fluttered? <laughs> no. Um, but there was already much interest in the military potential. I think uh, they'd been used in some of the military exercises. Is this, in is this just aeroplanes or is this... Well, no, they're looking, they're thinking about effective bombing, the use of machine guns to strafe uh, troops from the skies. And, you know, the, the technology is a long way from that. Well, they're thinking one thing, about it. But they're thinking about it. 
But the real thing they're looking at is uh, reconnaissance. Reconnaissance, and and uh, and this they 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 using both aeroplanes and, and airships, and everyone goes on and on about uh, 1912 and Haig losing a later losing a um, uh, a leg. A leg? No, no not a leg. Losing a, an exercise they had, a big exercise. It's a big annual exercise. But in actual fact, it's because he trusted the reports he got from his reconnaissance too much, which is quite interesting because he did, and hence lost uh, the, to to, uh, to uh, Grierson, General Sir James Grierson, who was his, uh, just, just about the same age as him. And he lost because he trusted and he hadn't seen, the, his, his, his aircraft hadn't seen something. This is quite typical of Haig, a point that should be made. You always over-trusted modern technology and modern methods sometimes. Uh, and, and this is a sign of it. Um, one sign of him was he, they had trials of aircraft in India and he actually recommended that officers go back for training. Uh, well, they hadn't made much progress. The progress comes with war because war is the catalyst. We've talked about this. So this time, 1914, uh, uh, air, air, aircraft uh, aerial warfare one to hear more about this they 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 begun experimenting on aerial photography observation of artillery fire blah blah uh, but they hadn't got very far before the war started but they were also thinking about how do you disguise the troops from uh, the eyes in the sky uh, and i think the advice of grierson or snowgate was to pretend to be mushrooms <laughs> grierson was a fine figure of a man he was. He was had a figure very similar to yours. What happened to Grierson? He died. <laughs> now, um, the, 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 our last phase uh, that we want to talk about is the uh, the assembly of uh, the troops for a war. How had that gone in the Boer War, Gary? Well, it, it hadn't gone particularly well. Although we mentioned that by the end of the war, some four hundred thousand plus British troops had passed through South Africa. You've got to think about the logistics of the time. Um, it's it's not only the gathering of the troops. You've got to move them. Um, all of the, the armies were reliant on the railways, uh, particularly the continental um, uh, forces, and railway timetables uh, were the only real way of getting people around. So you, you've got to think about the British. Recruiting in Britain was voluntary. We didn't have conscription, so we had a very, very small army. Uh, men joined the infantry for a minimum of seven years with the colours, and then they were on a reserve list for five more, which were, would mean they'd be liable to call, be called up in the event of the and war. And they were in the... Yeah, yeah uh, and, and they... they, they so was this adequate for the Boer War? Well, it was adequate for the Boer War, but uh, only in the sense that it was over time. Uh, it wasn't immediate. Uh, well, they had I think, a, a, I think a lot of ad that, hoc responses, didn't they? They, they called up. A lot of reserve troops. Yeah, and certainly, I think at the start of the Boer War, and you'll correct me if I'm wrong, but I think the British were outnumbered something like three to one by the Boers at the start of the war. And then we call up various, uh, I, I think amorphous bodies would be the term I use in a, if I was being intellectual, uh, militia, yeomanry, volunteers, they're all called up. And the Boer War stretched our military resources to the limit. And, 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 and so the regulars had done well, in a sense, but there weren't enough of them. So what, what, what to do? What to do? Well, bugger all's done at first, isn't it? Until you get the Liberal government in 1906. Not, uh, and you, Gary, are a Liberal, as, as we all know. And, uh, and step forward, Sir Richard Haldane, uh, the Secretary of State for War. Um, he's an important man, isn't he? Yeah, I mean, he, he and Hayes are very different. People, I mean, Haldine is a, a, a confirmed bachelor. 
Nothing wrong with that, Gary. He was described as being married I'd to be the law. I'd be a confirmed bachelor if I wasn't married. Yeah. I mean, he was a, he was a Scottish barrister practising law in England and described as married to the law. He had a, a sybaritic nature uh, and uh, social life. Did you have to look that up, Gary? I did look this up. It's uh, fond of sensuous luxury or pleasure, self-indulgent. Gary, this is you. Well, he's definitely the opposite to Hayes, isn't he? Yeah. Um, now, what was Hague? So he was Secretary of State of War. What was what is Hague? Uh, at this time, he's the Director of Military Training. So he's going to work hand in hand with Hague. Absolutely. Now, is, is, is Haldane welcoming? Uh, how does he? How does he try and deal with uh, army officers? Army officers are different from separatic pleasures. Yeah, well, he, he he makes a distinct attempt to get everybody on side right from the start. And uh, this is typified by his initial meetings with Haig. Uh, and, and you know, they got on famously right Now, you've got a start. quote from Haig. It was a miserable bugger, but this is a funny quote. Yeah, so Douglas Haig says, Mr Haldane is a fat, big man, but with a kind, genial face. Once seemed to like the man at once. I had two walks with Mr Haldane before and also after lunch. He seems a most clear-headed and practical man, very ready to listen and weigh carefully all that is said to him. Now, that, that's, that's good. It's a good politician. That sounds, sounds, sounds excellent. Now, uh, the army is then, it was, as you've said, county-based regiments, uh, one battalion overseas, usually, Gary, yep. uh, somewhere in the empire. Uh, one mostly at home, India, to be fair. Yeah, mostly India. One, one at home, which sort of sent drafts out to the, to the serving regiment. So, um, the reserves were, uh, were generally below strength. Sorry, the home battalions below strength. And uh, and really a recruiting organisation. So how would you get an expeditionary force of six fully equipped man divisions to to go off to France as as uh, Wilson and uh, Foch were duly planning at this time? Uh, uh, how are you going to get it uh, without denuding the empire or abandoning home defence? And bear in mind, it's against the backdrop of no increase in spending from the government, and in fact, there, there's some reductions in the overall budget. That applies to the navy. Uh, no. no, I think it was just the army. Yes, the navy is uh, the navy is the priority, and it's worth remembering at all times during this talk, Hague and 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 everybody is fighting against the complete dominance of the navy when it comes to spending. The senior service, the senior service. So if there's money to be spent, they get it. We want eight. We want eight. That kind of thing's going on. Um, now, what's Haldane's solution? Uh, there's a mishmash of volunteers, yeomanry and militia. What's he going to form? Well, he rationalises all of that. It's, uh, it becomes the, the new territorial force. Ooh. Now, that's responsible for the defence of Britain. But the intention was to provide an additional force when they're properly trained, which could be deployed overseas in times of war, subject to the men volunteering. And that, that worked, that worked well. Uh, yeah. Now, uh, what, what, what's Haig's role in this then? Well, he's got to pull all this together, isn't he? He's got to put all the details of the new system and he's got to resolve any snags or problems that, that arise. Now, we've got another slightly, uh, slightly amusing uh, thing. Um, uh, Haig goes to visit a medium, now a, a spiritualist medium. Uh, he was told to do this by, well, she was... Every, Obviously, a complete dipstick in many ways. He's gull a gullible sister, Henrietta. If you believe in spiritualists, you are a complete knobhead. Uh, and the incredulous Haig, who didn't, 
I think this is great and a sign of the wonder of Haig. He asks the medium whether the spirits had any cogent advice as to whether the new territorial force should be organised on a company rather than battalion basis. And in, in the reply, the spirits seem to have plumped for the company option, which, of course, Haig didn't. Um, but the, then there's more to follow, because the, the medium says that she's being guided by no lesser figure than Napoleon Bonaparte. I hope it was Bonaparte uh, the first, not not one of the idiot offspring. Uh, have you got idiot offspring, Gary? I have. Anyway, uh, perhaps I think Napoleon may have had a bit too much time on his hands in the afterlife if he's if he's listening to this medium and answering questions about company structure. So you've got a wonderful quote. What Haig and Haig's obviously taking the piss here. It was in my power to be helped by him for good affairs, but I might repel him if his influence was for, for bad, though he had become changed for better in the spirit world. I was destined to do much good and to benefit my country. Asked by me how to ensure the territorial army scheme being a success, she said, thought governed the world. Think out the scheme thoroughly. One's thoughts would then be put in so convincing a manner that the people would respond without any compulsion and the national army would be a reality. She could not bring Napoleon to me, but I must think of him and try to get his aid, as he was always near me. <laughs> this is just bollocks, of course, but it's quite, it's a, that's just an amusing sideshow. And I, I do like the fact it's in. Uh, books about Haig, that this this ludicrous conversation with the medium. Now um, you can't leave things to the spirits. Uh, well, possibly, possibly gin or whiskey in Haig's case. Yes, yes. Uh, and Haig presses on. It's it's not the spirit world. It's hard graft. If you're going to turn uh, the the concepts that Haldane had come up with with Haig into a reality. Were there any objections to this, do you think? Well, of course there were. The, the, Who from, Gary? Who would object if the spirit world say? Well, you, you've got the bastions of privilege within the militia and volunteer forces. You mentioned it yourself, the, the structure of the regiments and the colonels. Um, you've got supporters of subscription. Lord Roberts poured scorn on the scheme, questioning the military worth of a part-time soldier. <gasps> Oh, dear. Some um, of that still happens today, of course. Well, why didn't they have conscription again? Well, it, it was against the British uh, psyche to do that. Um, and, and as you mentioned, it wasn't the senior force. It was felt that the Navy protected Britain's interests and that the army didn't need to be there. So they don't want to pay the huge sums that would be required to have a, a, a large conscript army like France or Germany. They're it stopped. wasn't perceived as necessary. didn't need it. Uh, they're also worried about whether uh, territorials, as they would be called, could be given artillery role. Of course, that they could, and they were. But uh, you know. so Haig perseveres, press on, press on, and the end result was the Territorial and Reserve Forces Act of 1907. Let's go through what this does. You start, Gary. What does it do? Well, the structure that it creates is uh, 14 regional-based infantry divisions. Now that's on top of the the six that they need for the. the so this is huge, isn't it? It is. What else? Now, they've also got 14 cavalry brigades, all of which have the associated artillery, medical and logistical units. So they're building up a proper divisional structure here. This is, this is good. Uh, what else does it establish? Well, it establishes a special reserve. Now, under this, men could enlist as uh, special reservists 
uh, yeah, put my teeth in, special oh, reservists. Oh, oh. And after six months basic full-time training, which was usually with the 3rd Reserve Battalion of the regular regiments, it'd be topped up uh, by annual training periods and they'd be eligible for call-up for a period of six years. Ooh. And they, another thing they did was an officer training corps. And, and, and that's crucial when you expand the army to have all these uh, the kids from, I'm afraid, from public schools uh, who'd been given, they passed their certificate A and they were ready for to take on military service. Why are you afraid of kids from public schools? I'm very frightened of them. They, they have... Mm, it wasn't just public schools, was it? Universities as well provided a steady source of young officers. Uh, had, had, had the people at university been to public school before they went to university? Yes. But but officers training corps are useful if you need to create a massive officer corps. Suddenly, it's all part of it, isn't it? Uh, So, uh, as you said, they're not originally attended to service uh, servo. But I, I think let's make the point: when when does this territorial force become useful to us? Well, it becomes really useful in the winter of 1914 on the Western Front. Back end of winter when the 1st Battalions start to show up on the Western Front. Well, they all volunteer, don't they? You know, it's, it's, they can't go by all. I'm not talking about all the individuals. All of the regiments volunteer. So a large proportion of the lads do say, yeah, yeah, I'll give up my life, yeah. <laughs> literally. Yeah. Um, and off they go. So that's a crucial thing. And so therefore Haig... He's not only a general on the Western Front, he's also the man who was responsible for creating the territorial force which sent people in. What training they had? They'd had drill nights, they'd had uh, weekend training, and they'd had their annual camps. It was a good start. It, it pushed them on the way, and after two or three months after the war started, they were able to start being deployed to the Western Front. It's crucial, isn't it? Absolutely. Now, it wasn't just the lads who needed training, was it? No, well, you could see that from the performance of some of the bloody generals yeah. in, in the Boer War. So uh, and and what else was there a shortage of? We said it before: shortage of staff officers. So what happens? Well, it it, it makes it clear the Boer War. Is, it's evident that uh, more training is needed for commanders, senior staff officers, and the creation of a fully functioning permanent general staff. Now, Haig doesn't do this. I want to make this quite clear, but he's all for it. Uh, they, they, in September 1906, they create a general staff and, and there's a G branch at the war office. That's in Whitehall. Uh, and so this has got the director of military operations. That's broad strategic and operational planning and associated intelligence. The directorate of staff duties. That's the definition uh, the, of war established. So they decide who's going to be where staff training and training manuals. That's what Haig was in. And the director of military training covering home defence and training of troops and that's also what Haig was so these are some of the posts Haig was involved with uh, but Haig is responsible for one thing and that's, uh, that's the creation of the, uh, the Imperial General Staff why is that important Gary? well you've got to bring troops from uh, particularly New Zealand, Canada, Australia which are self-governing dominions and the whole process has to be done without interference. And uh, he he works out how to do that. So basically, you provide it's a, it's a, again it's a structural reform that's vital to that would be vital in deploying the forces of the empire to assist the British in the Great War, and and that's part of Haig's work. Now the other thing we want to talk about is that Haig had two stints in India. One as uh, uh, the uh, something of the cavalry. I've already forgotten what it was. Um, 
uh, he was uh, Inspector General of the Cavalry in India. But then the most important thing was from 1909 to 1912, he's Chief of Staff India. Now, this is, again, absolutely crucial. Uh, why is it crucial? Well, what does Haig do, Gary? Well, he, he, he's at the heart of the reforms that facilitate the creation of an Indian expeditionary force. Now, bear that in mind, expeditionary force. So... Um, he he took a, a stiff broom to the hey. the bureaucracy that clogged the system. And uh, have you got a stiff broom, Gary? I have. Now Haig himself enjoyed quoting a fine example of the uh, civil service style circumlocution. Ooh. Continuity of policy is not sacrosanct against diversity of circumstance. It means uh, it just, means bollocks. It, well, it, it, what it means it, it's just bollocks. I mean, what it means is you you don't you, if things change, you change your policy. Uh, uh, but 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 why not just say that instead of you know? And Haig took a stick. That was something Haig used to love quoting, wasn't it? It because was. It, and now he he being the man he is, he took a he took simpler procedures, encouraging direct lines of communication between officers to lay out clear alternatives and to. To be, to define a coherent policy, and and that's a staff officer. I often think of Haig as being the the supreme staff officer, a good commander, good general, but he's a great staff officer. He truly is. He is a fantastic staff officer. There's no doubt about it. And it arguably it was his strength up until that time. Now he he also does something that really affects the Western Front in 1914. And this is something dear to your heart because you feel these, that this contribution uh, is often unrecognised by certain people. Tell, tell us what it is. Well, he did this in, in total secrecy as well. He had plans produced which defined in every detail, meticulously, the dispatch of an Indian expeditionary force to fight alongside the BEF in France. Now, that's big. That's huge. Now, uh, uh, it culminates with a a 1911 staff exercise. They ran through the whole process. So it's not just uh, a plan. They have an exercise to check it. Uh, They've also got contingency plans for expeditions to Mesopotamia and East Africa. And they happen. Now, how did the political masters respond to this? Well, Lord Morley, who was the Secretary of State for India at the time... He He must have been delighted. Well, he discovered what was happening and um, basically it frightened him. The very idea of Indian troops serving alongside... uh, serving outside of the borders of India. And he ordered the immediate destruction of the plans. So this is, this is, I don't like to use it, but this is basically that you can't have uh, foreign troops fighting in our brave uh, European battles. It's just sheer, sheer racism. Yeah. Now, Haig took immediate notice of what he was told, and um, the uh, self-same plans duly reappeared when they were needed. So he put them in a drawer mark, do not open, except for war. Yeah, (laughs) and then they miraculously appeared, these destroyed plans. Now, uh, is this important to the story of what happens in 1914 on the Western Front? Yeah, the, the Indian contribution in 1914 cannot be understated. It was, sorry, overstated. It was uh, it was critical to what was happening on the Western Front, and they get there in the late autumn of 1914. And and, and in time for the later stages of the race to see, in, and, the, and Ypres, and, well, they're, they're just a little bit nearer the Nerve Chapelle and, and, and uh, Messines edge, but they are crucial, and, and Haig is responsible for these people arriving. This is crucial. 
Now, the, the last thing we're going to talk to, and we might, we might edge into this in the next time, is that Haig was re- uh, promoted to Lieutenant General. Oh. And, and in 1912, he was given the Aldershot Command. Now, you, you, you think a lot about this. We, we mentioned it at the start, but the Aldershot Command is important, isn't it? Yeah, it's a crucial appointment. He, he's now responsible for the preparation and training of the first and second divisions, which would form the first corps, which uh, you know ultimately is under his command in the event of war. Now, his performance as a general in command of the first and the first army will be subject to a later podcast. But I just want to talk about the Aldershot command, if I may. Yeah, of course. Okay. So it was often referred to, as I mentioned, as the best command in the army, and. <laughs> With apologies to uh, the 1960s play Oh What a Lovely War and the film of the same name, uh, Haig was a bit of a slow starter, but he then leapfrogged uh, many of his seniors, including Sir Hugh Plumer or Plummer, uh, and Sir James Grierson. We were only playing leapfrog. Exactly. We were only playing leapfrog. Thank you for that. Excellent. We were only playing the frog. Finished? Yeah. Excellent. He uh, he followed Sir Horace Smith Dorian, who himself had followed Sir John French, so your We Were Only Playing Leapfrog is pertinent. Now, there were some practical considerations, and I'd like to do a final quote, if I may, from Douglas Haig of some of the domestic as well as financial considerations of a general officer of that This is time. just fun, isn't it? This is just fun. So Douglas Haig says, Smith Dorian wrote to me privately about taking on his furniture and carpets, etc. at Aldershot. Rather a big order. I have written to him, but my sister will go and have a look at the things with someone to act as my agent when she returns from Canada. But I have a good deal of furniture stored in England, so in any case, I don't want to take all SD's things. Personally, I think Government House ought to be kept furnished by Government, just as the Lieutenant Governor's houses in India are state property. It is difficult for general officers to collect a mass of furniture for three or four years without losing money over the sale of things when their time is up. I just love that. And it's interesting because Haig is not a wealthy man. He's barely minor landed gentry, as uh, one of our good friends would say. He's bare, he, he's very, you know, he's commercial. His, his father is from commerce and he's not rich. The money isn't flowing down, is it? No. And, and, uh, you know, Smith Dorian's trying to, to flog his gear on to recover some of the costs. He's not I feel rich. very sorry for the general officers. I feel very, very sorry for them as well. Now, uh, uh, we're, why is it so important? He is in command of First Corps. There is no Second Corps. Second Corps formed at the start of war and uh, is to be commanded by uh, General Sir James Grierson, uh, who, dies. Who, who dies. And that, of course, Smith Dorian, uh, uh, Horace, is it? Yes, sir. Yep. He, he takes over command uh, at short notice uh, with hardly any staff, uh, trained staff, because who's got all the trained staff? Well, it would be Hague. Yeah, because the First Corps is established. It's an incredibly important command, and, and Hague spends the last two years before the war beating it into shape, exercising it putting through his general precepts and exercising uh, um, in, in the manoeuvres, uh, which includes the one where he slightly buggered it up because of the aeroplane mistake. But um, And that's preparing for war. But this is what we were saying. He is he is the prism through which you look. You look at the preparations of war, he's, he's, his fingerprints are all over it. Now, the, uh, the last thing I want to do, uh, we've overrun a bit today, but it, I think it's been worth it. It's important that... Uh, 
Hague is important before the war. I want to mention uh, our, our uh, twin podcaster. Uh, this is uh, done by our, our good friend uh, Matt McLachlan, or McLaughlin, as he would prefer to be called, and uh, Pete Smith, or Peter Smith, as he'd prefer to be called. And what have they done, Gary? Because uh, it, it's it's quite a, it's, it's it's a good thing, isn't it? They've formed the Battle Walks podcast, and they're every week. Uh, and they are, they take a different battlefield, look at the battlefield and talk about it. Uh, it's not dissimilar in some ways to our podcast, but they're looking as ex, and they, these two guys are experts at the, the battlefields they've visited and they take on a sort of virtual tour of it. And I think it's absolutely excellent. I, I urge all our listeners to, to, to give them a listen. It's Battle Walks and it's found on the, uh, on, uh, on, uh, Living History website. Okay, well, that's it for today. Or do you want to say anything? About I would just add that if you do listen to it, uh, um, and uh, if you listen to our podcasts, a review would be useful. We we encourage people to review both ourselves and Matt McLaughlin's podcast, Battle Walks. And there's two main things. Uh, Apple podcasts are a great place to review it. People see it there. They don't seem. To, it doesn't seem to be seen uh, so much on some uh, Spotify. Uh, but the other thing, of course, is our, our new uh, our new Facebook page, which is. Uh, military history podcast reviews it's uh, unimaginably trips off the tongue it does um, it does trip off the tongue and you can review it there review any either one of ours or, or anybody else's there are lots of great military podcasts but particularly battle walks don't forget the name okay well nice to see you in my living room gary we'll meet again don't, don't know where i don't know when. see you next thursday oh yeah Cheers. Cheers, Pete. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Thanks for listening. Follow us on Twitter and Facebook to learn more about each episode. And if you'd like to support the podcast, you have a couple of options. You can buy us a coffee at buymeacoffee.com forward slash pgmh or consider subscribing to the podcast for only two pounds per month and get ad free listening and bonus content you can find links for both on our facebook and twitter accounts 
Sounds great, doesn't it?